This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what the record-setting rainfall of this year's monsoon means to the ecology of the Sonoran Desert. And before the runaways, the Go-Go's, or the Bangles, there was the rock group Fanny. Their music is being rediscovered by a whole new generation. And I'll talk with drummer and Tucson resident Alice DeBure about why that's happening. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This year's relatively bountiful monsoon has given much of our desert a vibrant, verdant hue. It's resulted in a bounty of plants, insects, and larger animals. Along with the benefit to the native species, however, the rains are also helping invasive species, such as buffelgrass and bullfrogs. They also benefit from the extra moisture. For scientists such as Michael Bogan, this contrast makes it a terrific time to explore the outdoors. Next, Tony Paniagua talks to Bogan, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona School of Natural Resources and the Environment. Thank you very much for joining us, and let's begin with this monsoon, which has been pretty incredible for people who have been here multiple years, uh, probably one of the best, uh, and we are still expecting a few more rainfalls between now and the end of September. What has this meant for nature, for the natural environment around us? Well, it's been pretty spectacular, um, and I think we have to think about it in the context of where we were before the monsoon started as well. Um, so we were coming out of, of an extremely dry and very hot year, um, record-setting heat and drought. And so once the monsoon started, the wildlife and the plants had a lot to make up for since it had been, it had been so harsh for, for the previous year. So it's it's been an enormous boon to uh, the ecosystems to get all this moisture. And of course, the saguaro and the cacti are known for sucking up as much water as they can during this small window of opportunity. Is that what happens? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if folks were out before the monsoon started, you may have noticed that some of your favorite saguaros were pretty skinny. And, uh, and a lot of the prickly pear cactus and the choya cactus were actually dying uh, because of the lack of moisture. The saguaro, you know, can increase its volume by 30% or more during the monsoon season. So you may have noticed the saguaros getting much fatter, especially the smaller ones. Um, so they're storing that water, those, you know, up to hundreds of gallons of water to use it for growth for the rest of the summer season. So this is really when when the majority of their growth happens, when it's warm out and when they've got a good source of water. Within a couple of hours or so of rainfall, they can actually restart that growth and start putting on more, more biomass. Dr. Bogan, you mentioned plants. Of course, plants are doing quite well right now because of the humidity and the rainfall, and that leads to insects and birds, does it not? Exactly, yeah. So it's, uh, the plants really are at the base of, of the food web, now that we see all these plants that have popped up across town, these vines and these, you know, what we might call weeds, um, the insects look at all of those plants as a major food source. And so there, there are a lot of um, moths that you're seeing, butterflies, larvae, uh, caterpillars that you're seeing taking advantage of, of this, this luxuriant green growth that we have all over town. 
And of course, then those insects become important food sources for other wildlife that we have in town, um, especially our birds. And so the the birds are really having a great monsoon season. You know, in addition to having water and and baths and and drinking water anywhere they look, um, they've got just an abundance of insects to eat. Um, so we we might get a little bit annoyed when we have a bunch of insects, you know, coming to our porch light at night or or hanging around our house. Uh, but just know that there's a a really big ecosystem benefit of having all those insects eating all that that new greenery. I've also noticed a lot of people talking about the amount of color, the extravagant and amazing color that they are observing out there in the Sonoran Desert. Right. So that's that's kind of the magic of our desert plants is that, you know, they're they're used to these cycles of drought and and heavy rain and drought and heavy rain. And so you may be seeing flowers that um, are growing from seeds that have been in the soil for, for multiple years, and they've just been waiting until now. I've been walking around doing some hiking in different parts of the Tucson area, and I've actually heard some toads because of all this rain. This year has been a fantastic year for our desert amphibians. Most of what people are hearing through town are um, either the spadefoot toads uh, or some of our native desert toads, like the Sonoran Desert Toad, uh, the Great Plains Toad. Um, those are the ones that are that are dormant underground and waiting for this water to come back. But most of the frogs that people are seeing in the city are uh, these non-native bullfrogs. So these were these were introduced from the east coast, and they they do really well, especially in um, uh, either disturbed or or non-natural habitats. So a lot of our golf course ponds and city park ponds will have these bullfrogs. Um, and once it starts raining and there's flow in our washes and the humidity's high, then it's a lot safer for those bullfrogs to leave the pond that they live in and look for other water bodies to, to invade and breed in. That's one of the downsides of, of our monsoon rains is it, it allows these non-native frogs to move around quite a bit. And there are some fish as well that are non-native that are also spreading around uh, during these times of heavy rainfall? That's correct. Yeah. In a normal year, we don't think about, you know, fish moving all that far or fish getting from a pond into, you know, a wash or a river. But again, our, our extraordinary rains this year have meant that things are moving around much more easily than they normally do during the monsoon season. And for you as a scientist, I would imagine everywhere you look, you're finding something fascinating because there are so many <laughs> options in the water, in the air, on the trees, on land, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I always say that as a as a wildlife biologist, you're never bored because there's always, even looking out your window, there's there's some animals to see, some birds to see. Um, but in this case, you know, we have we have so many animals that waited such a long time through such a dry period um, that they're out now and making the most of this opportunity. Um, a good example of that are, are two of our kind of emblematic Sonoran Desert species, the desert tortoise and the Gila monster. Um, those are animals that spend, you know, over 90% of their life underground in their burrows. And so they only really come out to the surface when it's time to drink or look for food. Um, and they don't do that when it's dry because it's risky. Do you have a favorite part of the Sonoran Desert that you might recommend for somebody who wants to go see some wildlife? Yeah, I, you know, that's it's hard to pick a bad spot in the Sonoran Desert, especially this year since the rains have pretty much hit everywhere. Um, but some of my favorite places are, are certainly the, the eastern part of Saguaro National Park, um, out at the end of Speedway Boulevard. Um, I like the, the trailheads in the, the Catalina foothills, places like Finger Rock Canyon and Pima Canyon. 
those are fantastic places to go out now and, and see, um, especially the lush greenery. So it's just a matter of getting out there and doing a little bit of exploration. Exactly. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, Tucson, any part of Tucson you live in, there's there's a trailhead, there's a county park or, or a city park or a um, you know, Forest Service land close by, and all of it is is looking spectacular right now. We know we'll have dry seasons ahead, um, but we're we're sure enjoying this while we have it. Dr. Michael Bogan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. You One of the things that helped me to get through the year 2020 was streaming documentaries, especially ones about obscure bands that actually proved to be very influential. Last month, I saw a trailer for Fanny, The Right to Rock. It's a Canadian-made documentary that right now is playing at film festivals all over the world and available through video on demand. It tells the story of four very soulful, talented musicians who, in the early 1970s, became the first full-time all-female rock band fascinated, I put the film on my to-watch list, and I started listening to Fanny's music online. I also secretly wished that I could one day find a Tucson resident who might have a similar story to tell. After seeing an online interview produced by the Women in Rock Project, I discovered that Alice DeBure, Fanny's drummer, actually lived in Tucson and not more than about three miles away from me. So I called her out of the blue one Saturday and I told her I wanted to do an interview. She very graciously said yes. And the conversation we had about a week later, plus some of Fanny's music, is what you're going to hear next. Born in Iowa, Alice DeBure is now 71 years old, and she's very active online with fans both old and new. I started playing drums in second grade in school band all the way through high school. And when I was a junior in high school, my parents divorced, and I felt real blindsided by that. There were four kids. I was the youngest. And um, I had my first sexual experience with a woman and realized that I was gay. Eventually, my mom found out, and not knowing what to do to help me, she put me in the psychopathic ward of the state hospital in Iowa City. And the day after I got out of that hospital who was there for two weeks and they finally said just come and get her and be here when her world falls apart because it will i loaded my clothes into my drums and left home my lover at the time who was a woman who was uh, 10 years older than i was and where were you two planning to go california yep we went to sacramento she had some relatives there um but that did not last long we ended up cleaning apartments, and then if you clean the apartment, you could stay in it overnight. You know, eventually we found a one-bedroom above a garage, and that's where I lived when I met June and Jean. So it was an ad they had in a music store that I answered. I auditioned and got the job. Were you confident in your skills as a musician, Alice, when you arrived in California? Was it daunting to start breaking into the music scene? No. It wasn't. I was confident in high school. I had a band the last half of my junior year and my senior year. It was a trio, and we played around Iowa. 
So I knew I could play. I have to say that the song that I have bonded with the most since I discovered Fanny about one week ago, as of the time of this recording, is I Need You, Need Me. The first line of that song just cut me like a knife. I tried to call you, but they'd taken out your phone. Are you all right? I immediately imagined someone who was hospitalized. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That song is probably, and actually most of Nikki's songs are enigmas, if you will. (laughs) Um, Nobody knows. I've got a podcast that I'm doing now called the Get Behind Fanny podcast, and we just were talking about Nikki on the last podcast, she was genius level, smart. Um, She wrote all of her songs in her head and would come to rehearsal with pretty much a finished song in her head. But to try and say now, 50 years later, what that song was about or who the song was about or where she got the idea... Mm-hmm. And I love that song. I, I love the Mother's Pride album, and it is probably the least known of the four Fanny albums. That was I Need You, Need Me, featured on Fanny's fourth studio album called Mother's Pride from 1973. The band's lineup consisted of sisters, Jean Millington on bass and June Millington on guitar. Their family had immigrated from the Philippines in the 60s. The Millington sisters still perform together today, and their story is the focus of the documentary The Right to Rock. Composer Nikki Barkley played keyboards, with Alice DeBure behind the drums. Everybody sang and did some percussion. The band's first three albums were produced by hitmaker Richard Perry for Reprise Records. That included 1972's Fanny Hill, which was recorded at the Beatles' Apple Studios in London. What made the Mother's Pride album different from the three before it was that the band elected to work with Todd Rundgren who had a reputation for being a difficult but visionary musician and producer. We wanted somebody um, different from Richard. We wanted actually to have a bigger voice in the mixing of our sound. And Todd said, yeah, sure, I'm your guy, blah, 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 you know. But when it came to mix the album, he locked us out of the control room. So it was just another, you know, male, I know better than you do, little lady sit down and we were so tired of it we knew what we wanted to sound like i don't think any producer ever got a true live sound from us richard perry sweetened everything the first album is probably the most raw but the energy that we had in live performances is something that was never captured on record 
Well, luckily, fans today can find a couple of really deep cuts on YouTube. There's a, a version yeah. of uh, Ain't That Peculiar um, mm-hmm. that is largely, you know, unproduced. It's, it's a pretty raw tape, and you sound great. That whole Beat Club performance, that was the first time that we recorded on that German television show. And they were so far ahead of American television shows. They mic'd us as if we were in a recording studio. And then they pretty much just turned the cameras on, and we played for, I think it's about 35 minutes long. That footage is what people are discovering, you know, over the last two and a half, three years. Why don't I know about these guys? These guys are great. You know, these gals, whatever. (laughs) We are rolling. You got it. as a young woman at that time of life, what was going to Europe like? Did you feel the difference? Oh gosh, yes. We were treated like rock stars in the UK. I mean, at first we had to get past the name, you know. <laughs> yeah, let, uh, well, let's talk about that for a second because to a lot of Americans, Fanny is just kind of a silly word for a butt. Or a woman's name. Or a woman's name, sure. It almost made me think that you would have had trouble getting on the BBC, getting played on the radio in in the UK. But it turns out you actually had better success there. Yes, we did. And I have to say, there are just fellas that make comments on the YouTube videos that we have heard for 50 years. Oh, well, you know, the name means something totally different (laughs) in the UK. It's, uh, It's the exact opposite. And we had no idea you know, that it meant something different in the UK. And it was actually Richard Perry's grandmother's name. But was she English? No, obviously (laughs) not. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) But the UK uh, welcomed us. If you were really, really big in the United States, you had a really hard time winning over a UK audience um, because they welcomed bands that weren't huge, and just raved. You know, we were, we had so much press and so much visibility and fans that followed us from concert to concert, you know. And it was it was really cool. The three tours that I did there were heaven, heaven. Much better than touring in the United States. Well, did you think about staying? No. Why not? I didn't. Um, Well, I had a girlfriend back in the United States. My life was back in the United States. I never thought about it, quite frankly. Hmm. You know, when I finally quit the band in 
November of 73, then I did not have the means to get back there. You know, we didn't make any money at all. You know, I think we finally ended up getting paid $25 a night, you know, towards the end in the last maybe two tours or something. Mm. Yeah, it was a rough life. And God loves people who want to try and make it in this business, but it is hard. You had so much happen in such a short period of time. I mean, when you just mentioned you left at the end of 73. We signed the contract in 69. The first album came out in 70, and we released one every year after, 70, 71, 72, and 73. Mm-hmm. We were the first all-girl, all-female band to sign a multi-album deal with a major label and record full albums of original material with some covers. There were other girl bands before us, but they mostly released singles and didn't do a lot of touring. And we toured nonstop. Toured, rehearsed, record, tour, rehearse, record. That was pretty much it. Well, you you touched on the issues that you had with your producers, but within the group itself, was Fanny a democratic unit? There was no standout leader. June and Nikki were at loggerheads. I mean, it was like oil and vinegar. And Jeannie and I acted mostly as mediators between the two. Mm. Nikki was incredibly difficult to work with, such a great musician, but she was really hard to deal with. But she wrote such great songs. I loved playing Nikki's songs. You know, they were rock and roll. June was more, you know, ballad kind of softer songs, as was Jeannie. But uh, Nikki's songs were rock and roll, and that's what Fanny was, and that's what I liked was playing rock and roll. Tell me about what uh, Nikki asked you for in terms of the drum work on the song Blind Alley. Oh, <laughs> well, she said she wanted me to sound like a freight train. She said, you know, like like Keith Moon's drunken version of a freight train, you know. And so I came up with this on mostly on my toms, and I sounded like a freight train. And the, she gave me writing credit for the drum part. Unheard of these days, just for making a drum part, that's your job in the band, you know? told me that you were happy to talk because you think that what you did with the group was important. And I concur. Mm -hmm. Having this piece of history in your own life, have you ever found yourself giving advice to a young woman about music or art and following their muse because you had this experience where you were a rock star? Well, I don't think I was a rock star. I think you were a rock star. (laughs) Well, 
that's very kind of you, but Fanny never made it big enough for me to feel like I could call myself a rock star. I had some absolutely fantastic years playing rock and roll music with a band that was uh, the first of its kind to do a lot of things. Um, and I have had the opportunity to talk to some other drummers, young women drummers mostly. And the basic thing I say is, if you love it, stick with it. If you don't, don't. Because it's only going to be good if you love it. Practice if you want to practice. Don't practice if you don't want to practice. Practice with the band. <laughs> think about the music you're playing. You know, think about the part that you're adding to the overall picture that the band's song is trying to paint. Well, somebody who really liked the music of Fanny was David Bowie. Mm-hmm. His quotes yeah, follow did. you around. Yeah, from the millennial issue of uh, Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, everybody uses that quote. And it's a nice quote. David Bowie was a great guy. Uh, we were playing Liverpool Stadium the night after he played. And we got to the hotel, the kitchen was closed. And he got them to not only open the kitchen so that we could have some food, but he did this 20-minute, half-hour, impromptu mime thing for us <laughs> while we were eating. I mean, he, he was amazing. A really, really, really nice guy. And you're going to sit there and tell me that you never, ever felt like a rock star. Um, yeah, I am going to tell you that. Um, I look at my life now, and I feel really blessed to have had those experiences, but I don't think of myself as a rock star now, as a former rock star. I'm just me. I had some really great experiences. There were times that, yeah, I was treated like a rock star and it felt good, but that was mostly management trying to make us feel like rock stars so that we would deliver that image to the public or the press so that they didn't have to guess, you know, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, I've, I've always just been, I've, you know, I've been me. When I quit family, I, I washed feral cats, for God's sake, you know, and worked at an answering service, you know. So I've, I've no, I'm just a, a human being yeah. <laughs> on the face of this planet. Thanks to Alice DeBure for the great conversation and the music. The documentary Fanny, The Right to Rock will be heading into wider VOD release next year. To listen to Alice's podcast and keep up with all things Fanny and their current generation of fans, you can visit FannyRocks.com. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.